What is up, guys, and welcome back to the Sweated Out Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and I'm very excited about this one. I know Brian is, too. But first of all, I want to say he is a dad, a husband, entrepreneur, owns 1.5 plus million square feet of self-storage, developer, operator, owner, CEO of Setter Creek Wealth. Guys, please help us welcome the one and only AJ Osborne. What's up, brother? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Of course, man. No, we are... Like I said, we're definitely very excited about this. You know, we've been watching your content and, you know, it's just really, really cool the things you've been able to do and how much, you know, influence and value you're just driving out there to the audience and uh, to the world, especially with, you know, your your specialization and expertise. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's been a, the whole content game in, in general, right, is very, um, each person kind of takes their own way. And I, I don't know that, I, I've seen people that are putting out information for all sorts of different reasons and everything, but I, I really actually like the teaching aspect. I like putting information out there. Um, and I think that the better that I can articulate uh, investing methods and the reason things are going on, right, that builds trust, which allows us to get investors, which allows us to do deals and partners. Because, you know, I, I own several companies, but real estate, particularly self-storage, that's what I get. Most people know me as the self-storage guy, right? Wrote the number one best-selling book on self-storage and the number one podcast in the world on self-storage. And so that kind of became, you know, my thing and who I was. And um, it's been, I find that the more and the better quality information unabridged completely open information you get you put out and it, we do like i give away all my secrets like i, I don't pull back this is exactly what we did here's the numbers everything else and i think a lot of people are really held back by giving that kind of stuff away they think that they're losing a competitive advantage or they think they're giving out their secrets um and that's i just don't see that it's like it's i don't view that as creating competition anything else it only empowers us it only allows us to do more um, and it surrounds, it's like getting my message out there and it allows the right people to come and be surrounded by us. So um, I, I've loved doing it. So, so AJ, why do you think people's mindsets are so boggled down to, I, I'm, I can't give away my information. I got to keep the secrets for me and only give them a watered down version. And, you know, if I give this out and why, why are so, why do you think most people's mindsets are so encapsulated in that? So I think it can be a few reasons. Generally speaking, what we find in real estate, there's, it's usually all a hook to do something else, right? So some people are just marketers. They sell marketers or information products, things like that, which I don't in general have a problem with at all, right? But it just means that most content, there's a end hook, right? And so that's, that's their business model. So there's those business models, right? So it's like, I have to give the value proposition and packaged in a way that is consumable and I charge for it. And that's, so it's the information leads to it, but it doesn't deliver it. Then you have other people that it's more like, if I, it's more of a much more limited mindset where it's like, if I tell anybody, I wouldn't even, I, it, I wouldn't even package it up and sell it because that's gonna make my business worse, right? Um, that's going to create competition. And then I won't have an edge. And I learned something a long time ago. And that's that you're not nearly as smart as you think you are. So just because you're doing it doesn't mean you're the only one that's doing it. every, there's lots of other people that are doing it. You are not a special little snowflake that 
nobody else knows about or that for some reason you're so unique in a business model or strategy that you're the only one that has it. So somebody else is going to share it. Other people are going to know about it. We're in an information age. Are you the one that is delivering that information and creating value for others, therefore in return getting value? Or are you hiding away and mad that other people are telling about your secrets? They're not your secrets. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the first problem, right? And the idea then too, that somehow more information being out there is inherently hurting you or your business model. Um, for me, I think that's also a fear of that I can't compete, right? Which I can give all my information out for free because uh, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've failed. I've screwed up. We went through great recession, COVID. Um, I lost money. We built teams. I have 50 employees, right? Competition's always going to be there, right? It's not going to leave. And I'm not worried that somebody competing with me is going to inherently hurt my value proposition or business model. There's thousands of assets across the United States, literally over 50 plus thousand, just in the type that I'm doing. Right. I am trying to acquire 20 next year. Right. I'm taking less than 1% of trying to even the industry of which the vast majority of the assets out there are good for other people. They're not even good for me. I don't even want them. Even if I can buy them, I don't want them. So it's like the more that I get out, it's actually returns the type of assets, the type of business model I'm doing in acquire. It brings it to me in ways that the other guy that's being quiet, he's not even seeing those opportunities. So it actually enhances my ability to perform, capitalize on opportunity. And the guys that aren't out there that aren't sharing anything, it does the opposite for them. They think it's making them better when it's actually shutting them down. And it's a, it, it, I think a lot of people are now waking up to that. Oh, definitely. And I do have to say this because I've consumed your content. You are probably the thought leader when it comes to um, storages and, and that asset class particularly. And I love how you bring, you shed light into a space that, really isn't that sexy and hot when you're talking about multifamily, single family, flipping, apartment buildings. What got you, and I know a little bit of your story of how you, how you started yeah. out with your family and everything. How did you get into this? What made you, how, what was the light bulb that said, hey, you know what, I wanna get into self-storage units? You know, it's funny. Um, we, we also hold the largest private uh, convention in self-storage. I, it, I opened it up for, um, the, our convention. And I was like, you know, tell everything. I mean, I tell this story because I think it's so funny. And it, I, I think it's really important that people have, um, they have context to ideas, particularly if you're looking at somebody for information value, you, you have context to why they're talking about what, what they're talking about, where it comes from. Right. And that you're getting a real picture. Cause when I was in my early twenties and I wanted to go out there and conquer the world, a lot of people that I may have been in, trying to emulate or trying to do things, I had no context how they got there, right? And so it also made it very confusing about what I needed to do. And a lot of people think that after you're in a certain spot, that it's just like they just knew they were charging for it. That's never how it goes. Success is extraordinarily messy, and it's extraordinarily unknown. I had a very clear path on what my life was going to be, and it did not involve storage. Because when I started out, I didn't know what a storage facility was. So it, it's like we, we got started, I was started in sales. My, my dad was an insurance broker. 
He started an insurance brokerage firm. I started working for a competitor of his on the other side of the state. And he's like, um, you're not doing that. You got to come work for me. So I said, all right, which is great. Cause for us, it doesn't matter. Cause I get paid by clients, right? It's not like a job. I only get commissions. If I sell something, I sell something. If I don't, I don't, which I loved because like, that's how my dad brought himself out of poverty. So my dad lived in extreme poverty. And when I say extreme poverty, nobody in the U S today understands what extreme poverty is. He didn't have running water. There weren't toilets. They didn't have energy. His first hamburger he had was when he was like 12 years old. They went out and shot wild animals to eat for food, like poverty, right? And he started selling insurance door to door. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do too. I'm going to sell insurance door to door. So I had this whole idea of where I was going to go. And it, when we started going down that path and selling, it actually ended up being a trap. And the reason I got into self-storage was I was initially looking at real estate, which I actually didn't like, which is really funny. I didn't understand it. I'm like, you guys are putting down how much and you're getting what a month? That return sucks, right? I'd rather go sell something and get this huge commission. But I was trying to do it because I knew I needed tax benefits and diversify. So I was looking at all the assets that everybody else was looking at because this is early 2000s. Everybody was getting rich off of single family homes, small multifamily. That's what I was going to do. My dad says, hey, I bought this storage facility. You should come check it out. Now, these are dinky little assets in the middle of nowhere, right? I, I live in Idaho. And this was in a part of Idaho no one's ever heard of. And so I walked in to see this thing that my dad had bought. And I'm like, what is this? Like, literally, I, I don't get it. So people just throw their crap on this floor here. Hey, like, no, self-storage wasn't mainstream. Nobody really understood it. And what I did understand was the P&L. He said, well, let me show you why I like this asset. And then from there, I was like, oh, dad, I like this too. Let's do this, right? And so then me and him were like, okay. So he did it with another partner, this first little asset. I mean, him went and started buying these small facilities, really small. We're talking about, you know, $500,000, right, total, which that, you can't even find a fourplex for that in most markets in the United States, right? So it was really small, out in the middle of nowhere, towns that had like 3,000 people. Um, and we just started buying them up for two reasons solely. It was passive income and it got us some depreciation because our sales income were out hawking sales, right? We're doing the salesman thing and you're taxed at the highest level because that comes through you as pure income. The government just looks as that as pure income without any deductions. We didn't have hard assets. We didn't have equipment. It was just the sweat off our brow. And so we got taxed at the highest rate. So got into storage out of necessity. Nobody was doing it, which meant we had higher cap rates, but more importantly, it was a business. And that, remember what I told you, I hated real estate. Because when I was first looking at it, because it didn't make sense to me, storage made sense to me because I go, there's a product, there's a market, we can sell this, we can actually build a brand, we can turn this into a business. So the idea was we can buy it from people that were doing a really crappy job, turn it around and have this great, amazing cash flowing business where we could really, really up the returns. So we can go in there and improve those gross revenues and make a lot more money. Therefore, I justified it as it was worth my time. And so we started doing that when we sold insurance. So we, we kept doing insurance, we running the two things side by side. And we built the crap out of that. We started flipping, we started doing, a lot of people know, not flipping, excuse me, know the Burr strategy, but essentially we were buying 
massively increasing revenue, putting systems in place, treating it like a business, like a franchise model, upping those revenues, refinancing all our money out plus profits and going and doing it again. And we built this model that was just click, 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 click. It could just, we just knew. And as we grew, we got better and better and better as systems repeated and repeated. The first ones didn't do anything. They didn't change our lives. Me nor my dad took any money out of our assets for years. But what we were creating, I knew would. And it it, it did. I ended up becoming... um, uh, paralyzed from head to toe and I was fired from my, my brokerage firm job. Uh, my boss flew in from Seattle and, uh, fired me while I was in, in the hospital. I'd been on life support for months. Um, and so I lost my job. I had nothing, uh, four kids, um, paralyzed now. And, uh, I spent however many months in the hospital and then they sent me home paralyzed from the chest down um, to be in a bed for who knows how long. And uh, I spent the last four plus years trying to recover from that. And uh, I didn't obviously go back to the job or anything else like that. Um, I just then started blowing up storage, bought a couple other companies, started a couple other companies. Um, and I solely have focused on that for the last four or five years. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Talk about adversity. Oh, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. Man. That's powerful. And, you know, and I, and I think alone just, you know, obviously starting from the point of your dad and then to, you know, to the point of, of you experience what you experience and being able to continue on, it just shows you the, the, the true nature of entrepreneurship and the true uh, scars and battles you have to go through as an entrepreneur to be able to reap the benefits down the road again like you were saying because i knew what was going to come out of this i knew what was going to come out of this to then now be able to experience what you're experiencing now and of course there's always going to be more uh learning lessons but for you what was the biggest like aha movement in your life or in the state in your business where you're like this is the turning point this is the breakthrough it's very clear um i wish it wasn't uh, but <laughs> The reason it was very clear is because I almost bankrupted myself and my family and everybody else. Um, I was buying assets for depreciation, right? And we were doing that, which was good. But the businesses yielded so much money that I wanted to go up and buy other brokerage firms. So I was going buying other insurance sales brokerage firms, which had some salespeople, right? And you you buy real estate on a cap rate. So it's these massive multiples, it's safe, but if you put a million dollars in, right, you may make a hundred thousand dollars, let's just say, which is like a 10 year return when you're talking to flat out cash on cash. Now it's way better than that and you get into it, but at the time that's the basics of real estate and especially in markets that either are hot and everything. Well, when I look at a business, I'm paying three X. So that means I'm paying three times gross revenue. So if it made, uh, $100,000, I would pay $300,000 and it was paid off in three years. And then I made $100,000. So I'm like, this makes a lot more sense. So that makes a lot more money. I'm going to go do this. But I wanted to play like the big boys. I wanted to go into big markets. I'm from Idaho. And I saw all of these people that were really wealthy. And they were all out of these big markets. And one of the big markets was Florida. And I wanted to go to Florida because I wanted to play like the big boys on the East coast, right. In the Florida big markets. 
And so I went down there and I bought a company and it turned out to basically just be completely fraudulent. The guy screwed us over um, and we leveraged and uh, I want to do it. And it, it um, was devastating. It, we lost it. Lawsuits. It was, it, it was bad. And I spent I don't know, a year and a half of my life just in hell and fighting for survival. It's just one of those things where it's like, you, you can't stop what's coming. You're completely out of control. Right. And you can't patch all the holes and you're just going, I don't, know, I don't even know what to do. Like I just screwed the pooch so bad and it just kept getting worse. And the reason it was all happening, the reason I got screwed, it was a very simple concept. When you're dealing with sales, you have clients, you're a middleman, right? And our revenue comes from the clients, but the clients are not obligated to ever be with us ever. And so what that meant is I didn't own our source of revenue. So once we bought it, the guy that sold it to us went and stole 40% of the entire revenue of the company that we just bought and had to pay him for really bad. We were in losses, fraud, everything else like that. But the point was I was never getting them back. They were gone. And then because of the problems, other clients left. And I was like, I don't own any of this revenue. I'm just a middleman. And then I'm like, how can I ever compound a company on unknown future returns and returns, particularly that the revenue can leave so quickly. And I'm like, I can't grow this. I can't calculate this. This is unpredictable. And that's when I went all into real estate. And I'm like, at the end of the day, I could create wealth income, but more importantly, I could compound the returns because it was a known rate of return. It was measurable and it was actionable and it wasn't tied to my time. Everything else was tied to my time. So I I could only do so much. I could only get so much. And when I tried to do more, it fell apart. Real estate would allow me to do more and compound my results and everything, but not have it be associated with my time at all. And it was after that massively embarrassing failure, right? Like uh, that was my industry. That's who I was. I was an insurance sales guy and I just failed big time. Embarrassed in front of colleagues, firm, everything else. Like that. Career across the country. I had no business being there. I shouldn't have done it. It was motivated by pride and greed as a young man. And um, yeah, I screwed up. And uh, that pushed me into a business model that I thought was lasting and that we could really build from, um, which ended up saving my family's financial life. Because if we wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't have then built it because after that, four years later, I was paralyzed. So that story isn't that it's intense. That's an, that's an amazing journey that you went through overcoming all those obstacles. Um, and let me ask you this. So if somebody's trying to, I guess, follow your footsteps and they want to start, what would be, I guess, the best way to approach self-storage? Like what is the, I guess the view they have to know or the framework they have to walk into when they, when they start this business? Yeah, this is a fabulous question because there's so many misconceptions around the asset type, right? And when, when you learn and I, so I've had product based businesses, service based businesses, different kinds of commercial assets. 
and tech companies that I that I own and, and have done. They all come with a whole variety of different economics, different reasons, different benefits, pros, cons, should you be getting into it or anything. One of the reasons I like self-storage is I believe that it provides the greatest access for normal people to get into commercial real estate. It did for me and it still does for them. And the reason why isn't because of some feeling or I like it or it's just numbers. So out of all commercial assets, when you look at the commercial asset landscape, most of these are really big, really expensive, and they're all owned by a few parties. They're very consolidated and REITs and Wall Street boys, they own all the buildings, they own everything, all the apartment buildings, right? If if you wanna get into multifamily, you're competing over 20% of the market with everybody else. Storage is not true. It's a fragmented market. Most of all the assets are owned by mom and pops. So there's just more inventory for me to buy. And I'm competing with normal people. I'm not competing with the big boys. Now that's changing fast. And one of the reasons we wanted to get into it was because the industry was consolidated and I wanted to be the one consolidating. So it's changing, but still to this day, storage still has more opportunities for individuals than other major commercial assets. And the other thing that you need to know about is, first of all, the, the low barriers of entry to allow people to get in, access, that kind of stuff's all good. Um, but self-storage is a business. It, it, it's not a little passive, take it, walk away, right? We view it as a retail center. Now, you can make it passive. It's not tied to my time, but you need to look at this as a business. We don't have long-term leases. They're month to month. We're trying to attract customers. We're trying to get them in. We're trying to sell them. We're trying to upsell. We're doing revenue management, marketing, all sorts of stuff, right? Um, We may sell boxes, services, different things like that. And the people that treat it like a business far, far outperform other people. So when I looked at it, I was looking at a bunch of people that owned real estate. And I was like, you don't even know what you own. This isn't real estate. This is a business. Our model is simple. We bought real estate, turned it into a business, and that made us incredibly successful. So you need to go into it knowing that. It's a, its own asset. It has its own. It's very different than all the other assets, right? And so normally when you find people that are in self-storage, we're just self-storage guys, right? Like most of us, we don't do anything outside of self-storage. I don't own apartment buildings. I don't own other real estate assets. I own the office building that I'm in, things like that, but we nothing. 99% of it is in storage. The reason being is the machine we built is specifically designed for that. And we can outperform so well because our systems and everything that we built focused around self-storage. So our yield, because we can be an expert in that, I could not get yield anywhere like I can get into self-storage, not because of self-storage itself, but because of the machine that I built. So the opportunity cost for me to go into another asset is astronomical because the machine that I've built over the last 15 years is so fine-tuned and precisely built to extract value from underperforming assets. Now, the thing about that is, is people are like, yeah, you've done that over 15 years. Well, when we started, we didn't get nearly the numbers that we got now. And all of these mom and pop people, right? Most of them, it's run like trash. When I say you need to buy it and treat it like a business, I'm saying, hey, collect bills. Maybe make a website. This is fundamental stuff. Make sure that people are paying you. Like, I'm not talking about rocket science, right? Don't have delinquencies. Don't make it look like crap. Set up a website. Maybe a Google Ads campaign. Get people in there. Get people out that don't want to pay you on time. 
simple stuff. And right there, you can dramatically improve the gross revenue on a huge portion of the self-storage industry. That is powerful information. And and I guess it ties in with one of my questions. I had two for you, but I was going to ask you, because you mentioned multiple times, I know you've talked about systems and operations. First question would be, what are the, the, the biggest components that you would say that would play a huge role in the operations of your business within your system? And then also to, when it comes to the positioning and um, picking of your storages, um, you know, location wise, what is the best way to approach that? Perfect questions. All right. First, uh, the first question, the two things that I think are the most important is marketing and revenue management. Those are the two number one things that we see nobody does. Um, and that is just money on the table that they're not taking. Um, so we don't do uniform pricing. We actively raise rents and we get we actively raise street rates and we actively get the people's rents at the bottom up and we do it individually based. So you have 10 by 10s, not all 10 by 10s are the same price. Just like an airline. If I go to an airline, everybody in that plane is paying a different price. That's how my facilities are right? Everybody's paying different prices based upon location, when they came in, occupancies, rate increase schedules, right? And we're maximizing that revenue. And we actively are marketing to get the best customers in there, right? So we pick our customers, we go out, we find them, and then we are actively engaged in managing the revenue of that company. Now, those are the two things that I think really separate people. Um, Now, the next question is, was, uh, Get, so if you're going into self-storage and looking at locations, okay, now this is the number one thing you need to understand about self-storage. And I have something that I call my margin of stupidity. So Warren Buffett has his margin of safety, right? Mine's a margin of stupidity. And what that means is when I'm looking at an asset, there's certain things that I look for to make sure that the margin is good enough to where I can be stupid and still be successful, mm. Right. I can't be executing on a strategy that is predicated on me being the best. It can't be predicated on me being anything above average and it needs to work great. And when I got started, that was a lesson that I learned because when I did that deal in Florida, that deal was predicated on me being really good, us outperforming everybody. And if it didn't work, it all went the crapper, which that's what happened. I'll never do that again. Um, And my, what I did, this margin of stupidity ended up being massive. So I'd find underperforming facilities. I'd look at the spread that is known in the market. I'm not making up numbers. We're looking at the known market spread between rates, collections, right? Insurance uh, uh, sales when you come in, boxes, different things like that, revenue items. Whatever that, that spread is, right? That is my margin of stupidity. Now, the reason why that's important in location because when you're picking a location in self-storage, demand is everything. Demand makes you or breaks you. So when I say that I need to do a deal that I can be stupid and it still works out, that is predicated on the market being so good that it'll work out no matter what. Meaning I can screw up. I could not do marketing. I cannot do anything. I could not perform. And the market itself will make me successful. So then the market makes me successful and my expertise is the cherry on top, which makes the yield that much sweeter, but it is not predicated on that asset being successful. I see too many people that think that they're so good, they can pull off things they shouldn't be doing. 
And I think I should be so good that I won't try to do that. And then I just let the market make me successful. And we, and everything we increase out of that, all that yield that we get, everything off the table, that's our payment for being great, right? But it's not predicated on it, so I can still be successful. Powerful. And demand is everything. If you pick the wrong spot, because you can be the best self-storage person in the world and in a bad market and you'll fail. You can be the stupidest person in self-storage in the world and in a good market and you'll succeed. So mm-hmm. why why even gamble with the other side where I have to be the best, right? So I go into markets that have super high demand, raising rents, low competition, where I can go in there and I know I'm good. I'm safe. Nothing's going to happen. Most people fail in self-storage because they go into bad markets. And markets in self-storage have low barrier of entries. They get overbuilt and performance is not what they thought it would be. Then they end up overpaying in bad markets and now it doesn't matter how smart they are, they can't recover from it. What's your criteria for a bad market? Okay, so there's two sides that we uh, we look at uh, demand. So we, we look and measure total square footage on a market. So how much square footage is in there, right? Then we're looking at utilization of that amount. So square footage and demand don't directly correlate, even though lots of people try to think that it does. I've seen markets that have six square feet per capita that suck the worst markets in the world. Then markets that have 20 square feet per capita, three times the amount, and they're awesome. And that really comes down to the utilization, occupancies, rising rents, the demographics of that area and how that's affecting the current assets that are coming in. And then it also is predicated on future. So one of the things people forget and they don't look at is the impact of future supply coming onto the market. And this is where people get killed. So they go, they buy a storage facility in a market, and then two other guys build a storage facility right around them. The two other guys destroyed the market. They oversupplied the market with units. Now, nothing that you do matters. You can't raise prices. You can't do anything. So when we look at the market, we say rates are rising. We have high occupancies, right? Everything's going good. It's a stabilized asset. It's got major visibility in an upcoming area. Like, okay, all these things are great, right? Well, then I go and I look at all the permits issued, all the locations. I work with the cities. We try to make sure we find out and see every storage facility that the city's approved, where it's going, if it's being built around us. And then we look at what I call impact occupancy. Okay, impact occupancy is occupancy that is coming in the future that will impact current assumptions, right? So the future occupancy impact overall is measured by existing with the occupancy coming on board. Let's say I'm in a market and there's 400,000 square feet of self-storage. There's two facilities that are being built in that market, each 100,000 square feet. The impact on that market is a 50% increase in supply. It doesn't matter what I do, I cannot tell you if that market can sustain that much increase in the supply. I don't care what market you're in, you don't know if it can. That is such a dramatic increase in supply. And this happens all the time in self-storage. So if I'm looking and this, and I go to the city and they're like, yeah, we've approved what those two storage facilities, I'm walking away from the deal. Now that deal may work out great. The point is, I don't know. I can't measure that, right? So those are things that make us walk away. It could be in a great location, a great price, but I'm not gonna walk into something that could, the market could be destroyed and then not perform for years. 
right? Uh, so the market has to make it. So we measure that impact of future demand or demand that's coming onto the market that has not been realized within the market for us to measure. Oh, that's it. That, that's amazing. Deep, 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 deep. Learning so much right now. It's insane. And, and it's, it's, these are the things that I feel like it's like, obviously through your experience, through your knowledge, through your growth, through your mistakes, you've learned to acquire these new, um, you know, uh, traits, lessons, um, and, and skill sets to be able to apply into, you know, your systems and, and just definitely grab it, duplicate, grab it, duplicate. What are some of the softwares now, some of the softwares that you guys use and tools that is part of this to make this successful, to keep the engine running, to keep everything yeah. on track? What are some of those tools? Because I know that's sometimes another thing that, you know, as entrepreneurs, it's hard to find. What are these tools, these softwares that we need to use that are the most easiest, digestible, and, and efficient ones to keep our businesses running? Yeah, this is an important one because I think a lot of people get carried away. So um, there's lots of different ones can do different things, and it, and it comes down to a, a few few main things that you look at. So I let me uh, let me break it up into two different parts, and I can talk about that. Okay, so we'll talk about the management and then the acquisition. Okay, so management we use simple softwares like Basecamp. That's every single location. All our employees are running off. We have task lists. We have things to do. Everything, they're in there recording. We can see. We can communicate, right? We know what every single person is doing, how they're supposed to do. They're updating it. So we can track it all in one central location on all sites. We can see if things are getting done um, and run it, right? The second part of management is your actual management system. Okay, so your management system, which is actually taking in bills, things like that. So that's a PMS, a property management system, right? Well, this in the self-storage space, there weren't any good ones. So us and uh, a handful of other guys, we just simply built a tech company that would build a property management company that would suffice what we needed. So we spent the last two years and we have a company out of uh, Newport uh, called Tenant Inc. And they just built the product that we needed as self-storage owners. Um, and because the property management system is, is so important. Now, the front-facing part of the business, acquisitions, right? And I treat these two things completely separate. So they're separate companies, they do separate things. Um, the acquisition part, we run primarily off Monday, which Monday and Basecamp, these are free. You can just go get them, right? And, oh, excuse me, the operation side, or the management side, I should also say we do have a revenue management system. Um, it's outrageously expensive. Nobody should buy it until they get really big. We've only had it for two years. And all the revenue stuff that I was talking about, by the way, we did all of that without tech software. We just did it manually. We looked at who was coming in, who's running. So it's not something you need. But as you get bigger, there's better tools. And we use that because it's just too time consuming. So we have to automate things, right? But on the front facing side, we have our um, Monday uh, that we use. And it's the project base that we pull everybody. We pull all all um, our three main or our four, four departments of that company, which is investor relations, acquisitions, development, and marketing. Those are our four departments and they're all on that. And everything that they're all doing will tie into each other on that system. They're all running off it. We have all the things that they need to do. We're putting documents, central location for every single person on the team to pull, get information, upload, and everybody that is in those departments can work off of. Um, and so that's how we record our goals, how close we are to hitting certain goals, KPIs, all of that we build into that. Oh, that, that, I love that software. I think we're going to take one of those and we're going to implement it for our business too. Now yeah, I've loved Monday. I love yeah, it. I've, it's, heard, it's of, I've heard of it. It's, yeah. it's fairly new too, right? 
It's fairly new, Monday. It's very much like a sauna, I think. Yeah, like oh, a sauna. Okay, it's a sauna. A yeah, sauna. it's kind of like that. We, I mean, and really, that's a, it, this is the great thing about a lot of these softwares, whether it's a sauna, Monday, whatever. It's your personal preference. For us, Monday worked great. I've loved it, and we use it. The, the, the key thing is, like, software is only as good as the people that use it. All the data has to be input. People have to be on board. People have to agree. This is our management system. And I, we're actively going to work within it. If not, you just buy something and it actually makes things messier than it does. So when you pick one, create a company around and build processes, systems, everything within it and mandate that people, vendors, third party, you have to use it. Because our big thing is data collection. So we're harvesting data. Every time we're doing feasibility sites, looking at markets, we're just piling data all in. We're saving everything. And the goal is what we're trying to create is our uh, a central brain for the organization. So in three years here, when we have a billion dollars in assets, we have markets that we've analyzed across the entire United States, right? Mm-hmm. So we're at, I don't know, over 200 million right now in assets. Um, we've got three, uh, a conversion. I bought an office building that we're turning into a storage facility in a downtown. We bought, uh, we're building two massive um, multi-story driving uh, storage facilities that are each 200,000 plus square feet. Each one of those is probably a 30 to $40 million build. Um, and so when we're looking at doing large projects and we're inputting data off these huge numbers, so we're talking building numbers, how much does it cost on an office conversion? How much does that data is going in. So then when our acquisition department is looking at a project, it pulls the data from everything that we've already done. What this does is it creates it so we're efficient and we know exactly what to offer, what to buy, and we know how it will turn out. Remember, I don't guess, I want measurables. If we think there's an assumption, what are we basing that assumption off? How are we measuring it? Oh, amen, amen. And now let me ask you this. Well, this might be an assumption, but the future is self-storage. So I've been seeing a big trend going on, for example, of repurposing of different assets to turn them storage units. CVS recently said that they were gonna i guess unload over three years i guess 900 yeah 900 stores stores do you think that these stores could potentially be reconverted into i guess um storage units yeah we started that about six years ago so we bought bankrupt super kmarts and we would turn them into storage facilities and now it's a great um strategy but a lot of people with conversions I'm like, don't let the dog wag the tail. So what it means is, oh, there's a conversion. I'm going to turn this into a storage facility. I'm like, okay, but is that a good market? Right? So they're putting the conversion. Oh, I have an opportunity and the conversion may be cheap. So, oh, I can get this way cheap. That means it'll work. That's not how it works. In superior markets, we use conversions to get into areas where we couldn't get into that have really high yielding returns. Often, it's not cheaper. It's more expensive to do conversions. Um, So you got to understand that the benefit of conversions, though, is you get into great locations that maybe you couldn't have got into before. So, AJ, I want to also talk a little bit about um, something else I was seeing uh, not too long ago and something me and Brian have been, you know, kind of uh, seeing how, you know, obviously interesting because of where things are going with everything online. But um, warehouses in general, and I know this is how you talked about when your dad first got the warehouses and, you know, storage is, uh, you know, being a formal warehouse. But 
what's your take on you know the fact that e-commerce and online keeps growing and there's a necessity yeah. for more warehouses just to be able to store uh, in products. In the industrial warehouse space is my, um, ah, well, let's just be honest. If, if I wasn't in storage, if I was starting out, um, I would probably be looking at light industrial and I'd be looking at developing light industrial. Uh, so the economics of self-storage and warehouse space, we've been saying for a long time. One of the big things when we got started was everybody's like, um, like it doesn't make sense. Like why would people do this? Right. And it, there's all of these weird assumptions, meaning like people assume, so they're looking at it and they're assuming that, Oh, it's just because of hoarders. Right. That's not it at all. Self storage is actually very logical. So a lot of people are like, Oh, someday everybody's going to wake up and say, I'm not going to pay money to store this. That's not how this, this, that's not why this is successful. It works in the United States. Our ability to use the same dollar to purchase more things has expanded while that same dollar to hold things, meaning your house, home, everything else like that, has completely gone the other direction. Then you combined that with regulations. Regulations have been a big part of storage. You used to be able to, if I want it, I'll just build a shop on the side of my house. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> HOA cities, they're not going to give you the permits. They're not going to allow you to. And even if you wanted to, it's so freaking expensive. You can't put RVs out in your front yard. You can't have toys in your front yard. So the regulations have shut off everybody from doing stuff. So all of a sudden I can buy more because my dollar goes far. It's not that I'm hoarding. It's not that I'm any different than I was 50 years ago, right? It's just 50 years ago, I could put anything that I bought anywhere I wanted. And if I wanted to buy a toy, somebody had to make it for me, like other hands, and it cost a fortune that stuff doesn't exist anymore in today's world. And then you have the decentralization of the workforce that happened through COVID. And this was happening and we, we saw this with internet companies. And so we started trying to figure out last mile distribution, solving through warehouse storage. It's a big thing because we knew that I owned online companies and, and product companies. And it was like, all these people, they can work from anywhere. They can work from any house. And all this retail's moving to online. That means these people are going to need to be able to ship out, store products, launch products, take care of last mile, which creates a whole new thing. So you're shifting office space needs into warehouse needs. And that is a trend that is only going to continue. We don't see that ending anytime soon. And virtually every market in the entire United States is vastly undersupplied with warehouse light industrial space. It's probably the biggest need that we see today in all of real estate. Um, yeah, I'm literally right now trying to develop out a huge uh, thing because the demand is so high and it's not going away. And it's been one of the product types that has been severely underbuilt. Nobody was building it. Nobody was putting infrastructure and it's now caught up with us. Well, Marcus, do you see the most opportunity? So for when you're talking light industrial mm -hmm. growth markets, yeah. um, Texas, Austin, you're talking Salt Lake, Denver, Boise, Idaho, you're talking, um, I, I mean, this is the place I'm going, but you know, uh, you, I see Arizona, you see uh, gateway cities, Reno, Nevada, because what happens and you look at commerce and how it works, if you want to store something in California, okay, you get taxed on the product in your warehouse. So what people do is they go right up to the edge of California, like in Reno, and every single company is putting all their distribution, holding things there because they don't have to get taxed on it. And then they're shipping it into California every day, right? And so it's created this explosion of need. 
in these growth markets that are shipping products out, they may be more isolated and their small businesses have to come from there. So if you're in, you know, if you're in, let's say Phoenix, you have Phoenix, but then you're going all the way to California. If you're in Salt Lake, then where are you going from Salt Lake to Denver? Boise, I don't you know, it's like, it's not like you're there in the East Coast where there's just big cities all over where I can have one spot can service this huge area. You have to have all the resources and infrastructure in that area. And if it's not there, you can't do business. That causes huge high demand for a product that's been undersupplied. Wow, that's amazing. No, this is this has been amazing, AJ. And you know, I just want to say before we wrap it up, you know, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge, your experiences, your up and ups and downs, uh, what you had to go through. Um, to be able to, you know, battle through that adversity and get to the other side. And and, and the most important thing, be as humble as you are and, and knowledgeable and to share this information and build the success you're building. It's truly amazing. So we just want to personally say thank you on our behalf for coming on here and sharing that with our Thank audience. you, guys. So I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Um, I love talking about this stuff. It's exciting. Like, I don't know. We're, you know You're getting us even more excited. Yeah, we just got super excited. <laughs> <laughs> Learning a ton yeah. of stuff here. So well, I love it, and I'm happy to do it. So where can people connect with you? Where can people find you? Um, throw those plugs in here. Um, I, don't, yeah. I know they'll definitely be uh, excited. Yeah, Instagram, AJ Osborne. Um, and if you're specifically self-storage, right? I, I, I own um, uh, self-storage income. You go to the website, the podcast, YouTube. And once again, we just give all the information, everything that we're seeing out podcast, YouTube, everything else. So AJ Osborne, um, Instagram, self-storage income, videos, websites, everything else. Amazing. AJ, like we always like to finish it on the podcast. What's the number one biggest piece of advice you can leave off to all our listeners today in one single sentence? Build it for 10 years, not tomorrow. Mm. I love it. Build it for 10 years, not tomorrow. Long-term, guys. You heard it. AJ, thank you so much again. We really appreciate you. Can't wait to connect with you in person. You let us know when you're down here in Miami. Will do. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, AJ. Thank you, brother.